What's up, everybody? It's your co-host, Posh. We're here on the Founder Hour podcast. I'm Pat. And we're here with Joe Fernandez, who is the co-founder and CEO of Joy Mode, and also was the founder of Clout before that. And uh, we're excited to be here with you at the Joy Mode offices and to learn more about your journey and uh, to give us some insight into what you're up to and what you've been up to leading up to today. Yeah, this is awesome. Thank you guys for rolling down here to downtown LA. Uh, excited to chat. Awesome. So, Joe, we like to kick it out and kick it off, sorry, from the very beginning. Um, where were you born? Las Vegas. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, wow. I guess like Sin City. Uh, I wasn't expecting that one. You were born a sinner. <laughs> yeah. Far East <laughs> suburbs of LA, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Born and raised in Las Vegas. And did your parents, did they live there from day one or were they immigrate? Did they immigrate there or what was their story? So it's funny, my dad is born in Cuba, in Havana. His dad worked at a casino there. And when the you know revolution happened and the communists take over in Cuba, uh, that whole community fled. And somebody in that group ended up in Las Vegas. And then, you know, how the kind of immigrant Just story. Everyone tells their friends and yeah, they like, start moving there. Yeah. So he moved to Las Vegas to continue working in casinos. And so my dad like mostly grew up in Vegas, like high school and stuff in Vegas. Uh, and so my family has been in Vegas for like 60 years, which in wow. Las Vegas time is like 600 years. Yeah. Uh, and there's this weird Cuban community in Las Vegas huh. around the casinos. Hmm. Was your dad in the casino business? Or? Yeah, still is. Yeah. Oh, nice. So he, he's actually now out at Moranga oh, nice. in Palm Springs. Yeah, yeah, it's like yeah. the retirement circuit. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then my mom is from Iowa. And yeah. just kind of took off after high school and yeah. ended up in Vegas. And she was a cocktail waitress, and my dad was a dealer okay. at Caesars. And wow. it's kind of the Vegas love story, I guess. Well, what was it like growing up there? Like, I mean, did you, is there anything particular you remember from like childhood that was like, I don't know, different than growing up somewhere else, just growing up in Vegas? Yeah, I think it's super weird. Um, you know, now that having some distance from it, like I can kind of have a sense it was normal then. Uh, it's such a, you know, it's it was like the fastest growing city in the U.S. for like yeah. basically my whole youth. So like so many new kids showing up to school and then like a month later, a, a big chunk of those kids would be gone. Like their yeah. families moved to Vegas and then got caught up in gambling or whatever and they'd have to leave. So it was like, you know, this like transactional nature of the city was really interesting. It was also kind of a wild spot because like if you think about Las Vegas – it's a city who historically the whole economy was based on you being uneducated. Yeah. So we kind of got to run wild. It was like street smart, not book smart. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, you always knew which friends, parents worked graveyard shift and like whose house you could go to and like, or whose parents slept in the daytime. And, uh, you know, you're we really allowed to kind of do anything. Mm -hmm. And how far were you from like the, the strip itself? Like, so like the strip from my childhood home was probably like three miles. Super oh, okay. close. Yeah. So you used to hang out there? Not really. Yeah. So the, you know, the city is really strict about kids, at least when I was growing up, yeah. uh, about kids hanging out near the strip. Hmm. Uh, if you think about it, the last thing they want is like punk high school kids yeah. Yeah. harassing tourists. Right, right, right. So like, it's a quick way to get beat down is like hang yeah. around the strip. And that was kind of like, I'm sure it was like right before um, like all that development outside of Vegas, right? Like Henderson kind of yeah, wasn't Henderson like that back was like then. small. Like, I mean, yeah. uh, it's funny. We actually lived in Henderson when I was a kid and I don't remember this, but my mom told me they did, the phone lines didn't come out to our house yet. 
Oh, oh really? We were there for yeah. like six months before the phone line. I remember it was just like all desert. Yeah, it was just, just desert. Like nothing. Yeah. 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 Joe, did your parents, I know you mentioned that it was just kind of like wild and, you know, school wasn't necessarily an expectation. Did your parents ever, you know, encourage you to go to school? <clears throat> My parents were super hands off. Like our house was kind of survival of the fittest. <laughs> and it wasn't like a neglect thing like if i needed anything they were there and we were very fortunate it's like what a good boss should be like yeah like they were just like do your thing uh deal with the consequences when that happens uh so i was like i think that gave me a lot of confidence in everything i've done is the sense that like i was allowed to figure a lot of stuff out really young what do you is there like an example that you could think of that really stands out to you as a kid where you kind of messed up or you did something where you didn't really have the answer, but you had to just kind of find it on your own. And I think a pretty crazy one. Um, when I was like 16, I basically took a combination of buses and trains from Las Vegas all the way to Boston. Wow. And it was gone like wow. almost two months. I mean, <laughs> is it, was, was this you like running away from home? Type no, thing, I was or? just like, I was like, Oh, this summer I'm going to go explore. And I, like, sent my parents, like, postcards from, like, Chicago and New York. And, like, and this was, like, 93 or something. So it was, like, pre-cell phones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was just, like, gone for this. And I remember, like, calling my mom and she'd be like, oh, you know, whatever friend's house you're at, you should probably come home. Their parents are probably getting sick of you. I was like, no, I'm really, like, all the way across the country. And I'd, like, sent a postcard and stuff. How would you, like, survive in terms of, like, money? I actually, so I worked, so I'd saved up money. Uh, so I'd always been like kind of hustling and working and doing little businesses and stuff. So I'd have a little bit of money. and uh, But I was allowed to just like do whatever I wanted. Like yeah. I could, I don't think I showed my parents a report card after maybe like fourth grade. Wow. Like I could literally just like not go to school, do whatever. And uh, so there was like, no pressure. To was that common, it. like, just like, growing up in Vegas, or was it, like, just your family, like, that was like that? I think we were on, like, the extreme end of it, <laughs> yeah. but it was, like, it wasn't wildly different from other kids I knew. Yeah. Do so, you, yeah, go ahead. Do you appreciate that, looking back? I do. I think it's, like, like had a incredible impact on who I became. It's really weird now that I have kids, uh, a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and, like, want to instill that same confidence and kind of freedom in them but it's like feels physically impossible to right. like though i don't know if it's because the world's changed or like right. the pressure of being a parent has changed or just like i don't know it's like it's weird i, w- I want them to have that same self-reliance right but it's like yeah. i don't know if i could pull it off right, what right. kind of what kind of things were you into when, when you were in high school um like when you kind of came to that like after maybe like around that time when you yeah. were like traveling or even when you get got back, like, like what did you like to do? I really, I mean, I was into kind of normal stuff, basketball and skateboarding and video games and, you know, that kind of thing. But I also, I was always thinking about businesses. And, like, even in, like, middle school, I had kind of cornered the market in our school on video games where I was, like, buying and selling video games and, I uh, was like, one of the like first... Like M-rated video games that you couldn't get like, in the store? <laughs> like anything I get my hands on. <laughs> yeah. uh, 
And I was one of the first people I like made my parents get the internet. And this again is like 91, 92, like early, early. Mm. And I would go on these like message boards and down and like basically I created a book of cheat codes and I would print them and bind them and I was selling them at school. That was like gold. <laughs> yeah. Ah, it was. I mean, it was like I mean back then it was like you would call like a one nine hundred number or something to like get a yeah. you know, to get past a level or something. And then I remember like at some point the games like started releasing their own booklets. Like, yeah. Thick so it was booklets. like before that. Yeah. Um and then kind of you know, getting a little older, like uh kind of basically stealing music before there was Na- like wire and yeah, no, before wire. that stuff existed, like FTP sites and trading and burning CDs and selling CDs and uh, you know all these like you know scammy little yeah. high school. <laughs> I would call it the dark web, but it was it was the internet. Back it was the internet. It was like, like that's what it was. Nobody else was on. There <laughs> yeah. was no light web. There was yeah. just like yeah. that was the internet. It's like people would go and buy CDs and burn them and put them on like these random FTPs, FTP sites. Yeah. 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 Uh, so I was like interested in that stuff and then just kind of normal, yeah, like video you, game skateboarding. Did you know back then when the internet was just kind of on the rise that it would be what it's become today? Like, did you kind of have that vision that, you know, eventually it would have these sorts of capabilities? I don't think I had a sense of, like, I didn't have a future view of the world in any meaningful way. Uh, but I knew I was super into it and it was like, um, I don't remember ever making a conscious decision like I'm going to focus my life on like leveraging this new technology. But it was just like obvious to me that like I liked it and it was kind of a became a center point Mm -hmm. of my life. And uh, yeah, from like learning HTML, like, you know, really early to like, you know, then going to school and, and focusing on engineering and stuff like that so you did go to school yeah so i went to i went from las vegas to miami like very chill spots just like just yeah. from party town to <laughs> yeah. another party town yeah. uh, so i went to university of miami in florida um and focused on engineering there and you graduated uh no <laughs> uh, so i have like the weirdest non-graduation because it's such a like founder uh stereotype of like oh no i like blew out of there and whatever i went all four years and in fact you need 120 credits to graduate i think i have like over 140 credits but they're all they don't add up to a degree they're not the requirements for the degree they were just just classes that you wanted to take i just took all the classes i wanted to take i love that you bring that up because i feel like that's how college should be but yes yeah so like i don't have a degree yeah I have like a high GPA, like probably like a three eight or something. Yeah. With like way more credit, like almost a year and a half more credits than you need to graduate. But like, Jeez. I don't have a degree. Like you didn't, <laughs> like you didn't take all the engineering courses. No, I didn't take. Yeah, there was like, I so got. So what did you the, take? Like, what would you? What were like the majority of your class? Like, what were you interested in? Just different random stuff. All all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So I like political science and finance and um, English literature and like kind of a you know like his own ge program yeah so it was like this whole you know i had uh and the whole reason i didn't finish with engineering or computer science was like they had cobalt was a required language and i was like this is so dumb nobody writes in this language it's crap Mm. so i just was like i don't care i'm not gonna do it so you never wanted to like complete that degree i never got the degree so i don't have yeah like i have it's (laughs) <laughs> were you worried at all? Like, I'm spending all this money. I'm, like, spending all this time. Like, like, or did you, were you kind of just like, you know what? Like, I'll figure it out. Like, I don't really need to have the degree. Like, 
I think I was like not um I was like conscious of it, but all like more of a just like you go to college to learn. Yeah. I was like, I'm gonna learn the things I think are valuable to me and that I want and like I'm gonna get out of it. And like I don't actually care that much, but it was like uh and it was kind of just a like um I don't know, like a moral thing of like I think your requirements are stupid. Yeah. So I'm just not gonna do them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. Yeah, just that rebellious kind Yeah, of- so I always had like a like a I don't know, punk attitude. For some, especially for some majors, like they have so many requirements where it's like you you barely have any room outside of those requirements to take just like elective like classes that you're interested in, where it kind of makes it dumb where it's like you're so like you have a lot of knowledge, I guess, or foundational knowledge in like one thing, but there's so many other like interesting classes that you would have to stay an extra year and spend so much more money on just to like take those classes in college. Yeah, like I took a public (laughs) speaking class. Yeah. Yeah. And that actually has benefited me enormously throughout my career where like this one like legacy computer programming language like would have done nothing yeah (laughs) so and so around what like time was this like what year was this when you so i finished college in 2000 okay so it was like it was a really interesting time because it was like kind of so was that a time when yeah it was at a time when like college was at least that degree was a lot more like Raised, I guess. Than yeah, there was no right? like, oh, founders leave school. Yeah. Like, it's a cool thing to do. That like did not exist. Yeah. You know, or that like you don't need a bachelor's degree to go into this field. Like, you probably needed it. Yeah, it was still. <laughs> it was definitely still a thing, yeah. and especially to like go all four years and rack up all the loans and everything that come with it to like not do it. It was like, yeah. uh, I don't know. Like, it's pretty funny. Were you working during college? I worked all through college. Usually I worked, I had like two main jobs. I was a work study and I worked in the finance department. And then I worked at Blockbuster Music. Wow, great. <laughs> was Love pretty funny. Uh, I miss Blockbuster so much. <laughs> yeah. They had, for, you know, in Miami, I don't know if they were nationwide or what, but they had uh, a seed, like a record store. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like chain for a little while. Huh. <clears throat> um, and then my senior year, I actually so I like went through all the interview process to like get hired for post graduation, and I took a job with a firm, and they let me start, and I worked my senior year at my real job <laughs> that I was going to have after graduation. Right, what was that? It was with a consulting firm uh, that was like you know back then everything was like e business, <laughs> like uh, all these businesses were kind of transforming from you know, the old way of doing things to going online. So they were like a consulting firm right? that's now, you know, been acquired a bunch of times and is still around actually. But I, I was a consultant nice. uh, like for my, for my senior year and then like a, like year. a business consultant. Yeah. So it, was, it didn't have to do with like coding or. Well, so like they would do, so like our first client, the client, I, I was only on one client, uh, was a big insurance company and we went in and like analyzed their business process, but then, like that's when I would come in is to like build the tools. I see. So it was like it was to, still like to go like online. Like yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So it was like yeah. an insurance company, and it was like the first time insurance was online. Mm-hmm. It was what we built. So it was like pretty cool. Out of curiosity, what do you think about? This has nothing to do with you, I guess, but I mean, kind of does. What do you think about the consulting industry? I mean, sometimes I just think to myself, it's like complete bullshit where they go in and they tell you exactly what you already know, and they kind of tell you how to fix it. But I'm curious, what were your thoughts back then and what are your thoughts now 
on like consulting or even just management consulting or whatever it may be. Yeah. I mean, I was 22 and just coming out of school. So I was yeah. like, this is awesome. This is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and like, yeah. Uh, pay, the pay is good. Pay is good. And it was like yeah. the idea of like, oh, I'm going to go into all these clients and learn all these different businesses right. was really attractive as a like person who gets pitched by consultants. Like, yeah, I don't generally see a lot of value there. Right. How, do you think that that's an industry that will be disrupted? I guess, I mean, you, know, you have this kind of freelance culture now where everyone is kind of, are, there's such a huge world of people who are kind of like, either they partner up with other uh, skill sets, so you'll have like a, I don't know. What, design uh, consultant. A design consultant who partners with an SEO person, right. who partners with a copyright person. Who, right. Uh, and they all kind of have their little network, right. but they also all go do their own things. Right. Um, I think that is like going to increase. Right. But yeah, I don't, I have no real concept of the like McKinsey world or right. like that. The, right, like, right, right, right. I mean, the they hardcore must, consultants. They must still be providing value in some way. But I think that like, I mean, naturally, like the more data becomes available, like at some point, the proprietors of the business should be able to like make those judgments. Right. For, you know, it's, it's like, you're just hiring someone to come tell you how to run your business. Like, what are you doing at that point? Like, right. you yeah. know, it's like, but, uh, so, so you're, you're, you're 22 years old. You're doing consulting. Like, did, were you, did you see yourself staying there for a while or, or did you know that that was kind of just going to be like a temporary type of thing? Or, or how long I, were you no, there? I still definitely was like, so in my mind, I was like, all right, by the time I'm 25, I'm going to be like doing something big. I want to start something, whatever. For yourself. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I was like, I'll learn consulting and then like kind of use this. But it was 2000, so it was like, I think I was on the job for like six months, and then they like, they moved me from Miami to Los Angeles, and then, you know, there was like eight of us in LA in a small office, they were opening, uh, the boss shows up one day and is like, hey, we're shutting this office down, and like, we all were just laid off, so it was like, uh, and that was kind of like, you know, web10.com yeah. apocalypse, so that was like, uh, it was actually really hard because it was like literally for a year, maybe more than a year after that, like I would send my resume out all day, every day. I didn't have a job. Uh, and I don't like, I couldn't even get, no one would even respond that like, Hey, I got your resume. Wow. We'll keep you on file. It was just like, so it was pretty dark. I, I felt like my life had already peaked. <laughs> like my six months of work was like, and yeah. you're 22. And I was 22. Yeah. And I was just like, wow, I missed it. Like that whole dot com, the internet, I was like in college the whole time watching it grow, watching it grow. Then I finally get out and it blows up and it's yeah. over. And and did it feel like, like, I mean, to you and the people around you, like, did it feel like it was actually over? Or it felt like it was done. Really? Yeah. And like I this thing that was like so exciting and so much promise just completely. Yeah. Done. And it was like, you know, there was 9-11 and there's all these, yeah. uh, the whole world felt weird, uh, but it felt like it was done and just like. It wasn't, it felt both like you missed the party and it wasn't what you'd hoped it was going to be. Did you like regret like kind of going down the computer science path at that point? I regretted staying in school. I re I was like, I had, I had, there was a dude I worked with who was like four years older than me maybe. And he had gotten out four years before. So he like made money through that whole yeah. cycle. And he had bought a house, he bought a Porsche, he had all this stuff. And I'm like, wow. I was like, I can't, I was like, I'm on unemployment. I'm like not paying rent, you know, I can't get a response on a job. So I was like, 
damn, I wasted these four years in school right. and missed the window. Super and depressing. Just, yeah, so I was like, I thought I had peaked and just missed it. So uh, what, what, what did you do in that year? Literally nothing. <laughs> like, basically yeah. nothing. Like, yeah. <laughs> just applied for jobs and like... What were you applying for? Like, computer science jobs? Or, or I like, mean, anything. Like, yeah. all the way from, yeah, like, every engineering job that I could, like, find. Mm. And the truth was, I was actually a really terrible engineer. So I'd go into an interview and get, like, smoked. <laughs> and just, like, it was... Uh, and then I... I mean, I was applying for jobs at, like, GameStop. <laughs> like, yeah. where? And, like, yeah, you're over, Where you're overqualified. Yeah, so it's, like, and they're, like, no. Um, I got a job after like a year doing tech support for a software company that was selling software to auto body shops. Wow. Really neat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and still I still need software to this day. Yeah. And it was like, <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know. I think I was making like $75,000 out of college, which was a lot back then yeah, right. to like, you know, $12 an hour. And I was, so it was like, I really felt like I had just like missed it, peaked and it was over. How long did you do that? Maybe like six months, and then I, um, and it was really terrible. Like I hated it. Um, I was on a plane, and I met a guy who had been uh, a school psychologist, and I didn't even know that that was really a job. I didn't know right. that that was a thing. Yeah. And he was an older guy. He was telling me he was retiring, and this is like again like two thousand two. He's telling me he's retiring because. Uh, there was this new law, NCLB, and he was spending all his time doing paperwork to report to the state and federal government about the kids instead of helping the kids. And so I was curious, and I was asking him a lot of questions about it. Uh, and having this background as a consultant and an engineer, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I can't believe there's not software for that. Uh, so I got his number and we stayed in touch and we went back and forth and he was up in Santa Barbara and I was here. I drove up there a few times and like interviewed him some more and it turned out there was like this federally mandated law had just gone online and just like passed and gone live and all these schools, and this is, you know, early 2000s. Mm -hmm. So people, businesses in general weren't very sophisticated and schools especially weren't. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I, uh, basically built software to manage that process. So I like started my first company, my first like legit. Like, did you talk to other psychologists and see like, oh, like this is a recurring, like there's a problem for all these people? I talked to a few and I just, mainly I was just doing a lot of research. Yeah. And um, like it was a big enough thing where you're like, I should start this or was it just like, well, you're, you're curious and you're like, I'll just. I was curious together. and like, I mean, it was a very random thing i had like i was like 22 i like didn't have kids could care less about education it was just like oh wow here's a problem there's a law if schools are out of compliance it's like there's big financial issue you know uh it's a big financial problem so i just built the software to try to solve that and you built that yourself i built it myself and the dude i mentioned who was like a few years older than me. He was actually my boss who had the Porsche in the house. I convinced him to come help me. Uh, so it was really the two of us. And then we partnered with that school psychologist. Mm. And then we hired one other guy who is like a sales guy. And we went and tried to sell this product to schools. Was, was yeah. it successful? We got it into 80% of the schools in the U.S. Really? <laughs> yeah. How long did that take? 
it took like four years. Wow. Uh, and I'm assuming the software still exists today or? It's been acquired uh, yes. by a public company. But um, so it was a really weird thing. What happened? The very, very first school district we got introduced to was San Francisco Unified. So I go up there, pitch them, and they're like, oh, this is awesome. We're in. We'll buy it. And they like bought it on the spot. So I was like, and did you have this whole like subscription model laid yeah. out? And like, okay. So you had uh, that. So San Francisco buys it. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be like wildfire. Like, yeah. you know, like we're just going to go cr- cross country, you know, line them up, knock them down. The next like 18 months didn't close a single school district. Oh, I was like, I went to like every conference, every random event. Yeah. Like spent the whole year driving around, flying around, <clears throat> and literally did not close a single school district. We're about to like shut the company down. And I was at one of those events and I met a guy who was uh his company did what was called student information systems. So student information system is the like manages the whole school. Mm-hmm. It's like the grades, the lunches, the buses, everything. And he was like oh, dude, why are you going school district to school district? That's stupid. He's like, we go sell the whole state. We have, like, lobbyists. We go sell the whole state. And when we, you know, we, it's as hard to sell a state as it is a, a school right. district. If you sell a state, you get all of them. Yeah. Uh, so we did a deal with his company where we were the, like, white label <laughs> little special education component, and then they were selling it state by state by state. What, they would integrate it into their SIS? Yeah. Okay. So we were just, like, used our little... We had a little API we built. They built it into their thing. Um, and there was like three or four companies who did that, who were like the student information system. We got all of them to use our system. Talk about a growth hack. Yeah. And we just like instantly had like the whole country. And there were four of us employees. We never raised money. Huh. And we were just getting like a very small amount, like a nickel per student. Which but a lot. For the U.S. <laughs> so yeah. it ends up being a lot. Per month? It was like I can't remember the exact economics. I mean, we were, it was like a couple million dollar a year business. Nice, but if you're like, and then yeah. how long did you run that? I well, so it was interesting. Once we did those deals, basically the deal was like they didn't. We were like actually prohibited in our deal from adding new features. Really, they because they were like we trained the schools. We don't want to have to go retrain anybody. Got it. So it became just a like customer support thing. Yeah. So we all went and did you different jobs. So I went and like founded a different company. This thing was like running itself. It was just running. Yeah. For like for a long time. I sold my shares to help fund cloud though. Mm. So I was involved for I don't know, six. So years it was still like its own private it was like a bit private business at that yeah. time. So so it never been, got bought until oh, okay. more recently. Okay. But it ran for like a long time as just like uh I don't know, the provider to all these student information mm. systems. Drew, I'm curious, how did you in those 18 months survive? Like, how did, like, what was your mentality? You know, were you thinking, like, damn, like, it's been 18 months, like, nothing's really coming out of this. Like, should we keep doing this? Like, why didn't you give up in month six? Why don't you give up in month 12? Yeah, I mean, it was really, you know, still the economy was really bad. So it wasn't like there was a lot of other Options. interesting things. Yeah. Uh, and I just didn't really know – I didn't know that – yeah, there wasn't the internet then. I would like – I think about this a lot. Like the fact that there wasn't Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Medium right. Post, like I didn't know I was behind. 
Right. And I wasn't jealous of what other people were doing. Right. And so I was just like, I felt like I was just hustling and I was like, you know, I'd fill stuff in. I would do little like random contract things in between just to like make rent or whatever. There was no issue of like, this isn't good enough. Yeah. I didn't feel like, oh, wow, I'm not tracking. Right. Uh, Because there just was like the information, you know, compared to my friends, I was actually doing really great. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Because right now I feel like everybody who's like about to hit 30 is like, we are so unsuccessful if we haven't started a company, if we haven't sold a company, because you're always comparing yourself to like that one person that you see who's like pretend selling his company to like a pretend company yeah and like all the fake bullshit that's happening on social media yeah like who's you know like oh i haven't spoke at a conference or i haven't right exactly. I haven't had any press right. or like yeah i'm not a mo- just, i'm not a motivational speaker yet yeah like, i don't have right? this many followers yeah. like just none of that existed right. so it was like actually way yeah. easier to be like just do your thing right i, guess, yeah. and I feel like this is a great segue into yeah. clout which you started yeah. after the opposite this. Of like <laughs> yeah, exactly. created the yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, to be able to monitor this stuff uh, tell us like how that even came about like i love the name obviously and it's still something that's you know stood the test of time but uh how did the idea for clout come about and what was that transition like yeah so clout was um kind of a crazy thing so after the school thing i moved to new york from los angeles um, I got involved with a company there that was uh, doing things in the data space, but are really around real estate data. So like aggregating old data that was interesting in a real estate transaction. I was running basically like product and engineering there, a kind of a late co-founder. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was like looking at a lot of data and thinking about data a lot. <clears throat> uh, late 2007, I had jaw surgery, so my jaw was wired shut for like three months. Uh, I have like, I don't know, 12 screws and a bunch of plates, and like they took like an inch of bone out of my jaw. Did you, uh, did you have like an accident? or it was No, just it's like, like so lame. Nothing cool even happened. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like my jaw was like not aligned, oh, and they had told yeah. me when I was like 17 I was yeah. going to need this surgery. Otherwise, like your teeth would get all messed up. It was just like I was, yeah. had really bad headaches and a bunch yeah. of stuff. So I finally got it fixed. Uh so late 2007, 2007, early 2008, I'm like wired shut, stuck in my apartment in New York, and I'm really reliant on Twitter and Facebook just to like communicate. And right. I'd been using those casually and even as part of my job and looking at all these data sets. But once I was completely reliant on them, it changed how I thought about those platforms, that it was like crazy to me that the people who trusted me the most I could share my opinion with them on anything and for the first time that that word of mouth was measurable and it was scalable and you know I had this background of engineering and data so I built a really crappy prototype of clout while and it was the name I have the notebook page the first thing at the top of the notebook is clout with a k and it's like a sketch of what it was yeah and and for context this was like pretty early twitter days yeah uh, so it was like so 2008 Facebook was like four four years old ish yeah so like i remember at the time facebook not too long before that had just opened up public it had been just for like college That's kids right. yeah. before that and twitter was just taking off and i remember it was like this race between ashton kutcher and cnn to see who was going to get to a million followers first mm. And it was this big thing. So Twitter was still small. Yeah. Uh, and so 
my job's wired shut. I build this thing. A few months later, I get unwired and I go to show some friends. I'm like, hey, I built this thing. What do you think? And everyone's like, this is the dumbest thing. Like, And so what was it? Like, tell us. So yeah, clout. it was a one to 100 score that looked at, at that point, only Twitter to measure how influential you were. Mm-hmm. So I would look, you had this like really crude algorithm on basically, yeah, like when you created content, did people care? Yeah. And I'm guessing like it was a lot easier to like, the, like the API was like just open and like it was a lot easier to scrape data at the time. Yes and no. The API was open, but it was super unreliable. It was like hard to actually pull the data because it was, yeah. But it also didn't require you to log into your Twitter account, uh, which gave you access to it. You could log in to Cloud with your Twitter. Twitter was really open. Like we were pulling right. data on everybody. Right. Yeah. But you could add your Twitter account to your Cloud right. score and different stuff to like, right. we would get more data about you. Right. Um, it kind of just took off. Like, so my friends thought it was stupid. Uh, I actually, I couldn't convince, I, I was like, I'm doing this. I think it's a big deal. So the thesis then was like, all forms of broadcast media had been measured. TVs measured, radios measured, newspapers measured. I really strongly believed that social media was going to explode and every person was going to have the ability to be a broadcaster. And if mm. you could measure that, that it would be important. So you'd asked earlier of like the internet had an impact on like what I thought of the future. At that point, I didn't think that far ahead, but with cloud and social media, I was like, okay, like the world is going to change here. And, and this was I, before anyone was like really monetizing off of Twitter yeah. and Facebook. Yeah, nobody was an influencer. No. Nothing was, yeah, it was just like, it was super, super, super early days. Um, like, the first time I went to Twitter's office to meet with them, to show them what I had built, there was like 11 people working there. Wow. So I was like, you just walked I feel there. Like I could name them all. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, I yeah. can. Yeah. Back um, when they still didn't have the dislike button. Yeah, exactly. Still, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so... That was the thesis. I tried getting some friends to quit their jobs to join me. Everyone was like, this is dumb. Uh, How were you going to monetize this thing? Did you have an idea? I, I just had a, just a belief that it would be valuable. Like, okay. And if, if there was value, it would equate to some sort of money. Yeah, like eventually that, that would Whether work. it's a subscription, whether it's an acquisition, something. Yep. I remember when I was making the decision of like quitting my job, I had this conversation with my then-girlfriend, now-wife. I said like, if everything goes right, I think we could grow this company to like five or so people <laughs> and Twitter will maybe acquire it for a couple million bucks. Like that was like the horizon. Of, that was the peak, yeah. That was like... The ideal situation. Yeah. Everything went right. This would be amazing. This could happen. Um, and I was like, and if it doesn't work, I will be doing something interesting in this space and I bet I could get a job at Twitter. Right. And I was like, so... It's Either way, I'm going to end up at Twitter. Yeah, I was like, this will be cool. <laughs> Either, Either as like a C-suite or just doing something. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you, uh, just wondering, like, were, did you feel at that time when you quit your job that you were financially secure enough to build this thing that you really didn't know was going to make you money or not? I had saved up, I think I had like $10,000 saved up. Which felt like $10 million, but right, like yeah. it's not that much And this money. is like how old are you around this time? Like 29, 28, 29. Yeah. 
So it's um, right around, around the time, like, I'm sure your friends are getting married. And yeah, people like, are getting married. I'm living yeah. in New York. It's not cheap. <laughs> yeah, it's not. Uh, so, like, that money could go really fast. Hopefully your girlfriend was working, too. She was working, so that helped. Yeah. And, like, we were, you know, serious enough that it was, like, it was a yeah. conversation. And I'm assuming she was supportive of you, like, quitting your job and, like, taking on this risk. Yeah, and, I mean, you know, she was... Uh, after Cautiously optimistic. Yeah. Uh, um, She'll say now that she probably did not think it was going to end up. Yeah. Uh, but I, yeah, I had a few thousand bucks. Um, but I was like, in my mind, I was like, okay, I just need to make it a few months and then I'll get funding. Right. Uh, and I, I had never met an investor. I didn't even know what. I, by that point, the internet was big enough that I knew investors were a thing and I was reading about it a lot but I didn't know actually what it took to get funded. Um, so I couldn't convince any friends to come join me. I had one friend in New York who married a singer. He was a New Yorker. He married a Singaporean woman and moved to Singapore, and he opened an offshore dev shop in Singapore. I did a deal with him for equity where I got some of his engineers, and then I went and offshored myself I stayed in Singapore for like eight months mm-hmm. to build. Why did you need all these engineers though? Like, hadn't you built like kind of the, like, was it kind of like just a framework and like it was built off? Like, it was so much? bad. Yeah. Really? It was like basically what I built was like, I mean, it was embarrassingly bad. Yeah. Like, somebody would like regi- regi- back end, front end, both, both, uh, every, the whole thing. I built the bad? whole, like, you could, so if you went to the first version of Clout and registered, it was like a really, super basic web page it would send an email to me with your like information i would then like go in the system and manually pull your data from twitter mm. and then copy and paste it into excel to run the yeah, cloud not very sustainable <laughs> and then i would <laughs> give you a score <laughs> and then i would like manually go in and update your web page your cloud score page and then i would manually email you back and be like Hey, dude, your score's ready. Yeah, <laughs> and like so, no so, automation. Yeah, no automation, but it was like the bones were a little bit there. Yeah, it was like a proof of concept. It yeah. was really like duct tape. Yeah. So, how long did it, t- it take? Eight months to build it? Well, yeah. So, we from that was like my version that I did while my jaw was wired shut. I went over there and we made it like a legit ish right. thing, right, right. and uh, over the course of eight months, and I was like two seven. It was like two trips of four months, basically. Mm-hmm. So you had said that you were going to ideally raise money at one point. Did you end up raising that money and what was that process like? So I'm sitting in Singapore uh, and all of a sudden it's September of 2008. So exactly 11 years ago. But it's like Lehman Brothers. Yeah. Like 2008, 2009 was like world financial, you know, shitstorm, (laughs) apocalypse. So like I'm sitting there and I'm just like, oh crap. Like, I quit my job. And were you I, making money at this time? Or no, nothing? no, not at yeah, all. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I remember sitting in the office in Singapore for two days just staring at the ceiling because I had quit my job and I was like, there's no way going to raise any money. Like, the world financial And that system, was your path to profit, like, making something. Like the goal was to, like, build something to go pitch it to try to raise money. Yeah. And I was like, no... There's no money to be raised. There's no jobs to be had. And you're shit out of luck. Yeah, like I'm screwed. So yeah, I it I was like paralyzed with like what did I just do? Yeah. And uh 
finally got over it. I was like, well, all I could do is like finish building this thing and try to make you it try, work. Yeah. Uh, so actually, it took two years from them. I didn't get the wow. first funding to like 2010. Wow. So it was just like two years of like. Which is still like, I feel like that's like when Instagram like was just like launching, right? Still probably a year and a half or two before, before Instagram. Yeah, it was like, yeah, so it was like yeah, Foursquare was starting to come up. Tumblr was starting to come up. I mean, yeah. I was in New York, so I would see those guys. Foursquare was two people. Tumblr was two people. Like they were wave. small companies. Yeah. Uh, but that was like, yeah, that was when that was all happening. But in those two years, you were obviously, you had users. Yeah. So like you, it kind of took off. And it like, you know, was there like a moment that sparked that takeoff? I think it was just like this. There was a bigger wave that we were riding. Just like social media was becoming a thing, and it was like it had transformed from like, oh, MySpace, which was like a kids thing, to like, you know, Twitter, and you know, like, is this people are putting a lot of effort into it? It doesn't matter for your job, and like having the score and the name, the clout name really resonated. Mm -hmm. And so it was like the combination of like, I'd done a lot of stuff that was like right product, wrong time. And mm -hmm. many more things that were wrong product anytime. This was like right product, right time. Yeah. And just like, and it had this ego crack component where you went in, right. you put your name in and it was like, Oh, you're a 57. And you, and like people would tweet out like, my cloud score is 57 and then everyone would be like well what's my score and like yeah it just had this like i remember like he had, he had done it i think one time and i was yeah. like what is this and then i yeah. did it and it's like yeah okay. and i found out about it in 2011 and uh the person that told me about it actually was a guest of ours alex benayan <laughs> and um we were sitting at usc and like we were in student government and i overheard him talking about it and i'm like huh, let me check this thing out <laughs> and then i asked him like what it was and that's how he told me and like yeah. back then like I mean, I've been using Twitter for years, so I was, like, always on Twitter and then Instagram and Facebook. And I remember at one point, like, you could get all three scores. Like, yeah, combined. so we added all that yeah, stuff together. Yeah. I think we had, like, 30 or 40 social yeah. networks at one point. I was yeah. definitely, like, yeah. my key, like, uh, influence was, like, USC, <laughs> USC Trojans, USC yeah. football, UCLA football, which I always shat on. Yeah. So um, <laughs> it was, I was, like, it was always those. Like, you could tell, really, that I was a heavy USC influencer. That's yeah. awesome. So not much has changed. But, yeah, that's, I found out about it in 2011, so I've been following That was, like, years. 2011, 2012 were really just, yeah. like, peak, yeah. peak clout years. Yeah. And in um, those, like, couple of years, uh, what were you doing to make money? Like, were you just fully working on this thing and well you got did you get funded or oh yeah we raised a bunch of money after that <laughs> okay so it was like i think in total we raised like a little like 40 some million wow um what was that experience like because i know you said you had never done it it was crazy yeah like i had when i started cloud i literally had never met a single person who even worked at google like a janitor at google or not like i felt still very distant from like the silicon valley scene uh so the first round of funding for Cloud was a million and a half dollars. I think I pitched like 200 people and it was 37 angel investors. Oh my God. So it was like super long tail, small checks. Um, but then my next round was led by Kleiner Perkins, who was like, wow. you know, one the of biggest. the most, the biggest, most important firms. And like, how long was it until you got that round? After? It was like a year after. And that round took like, you know, so it took like a year to raise the million and a half and it took like two months to raise the next 10 and then it took like two weeks to raise the next 30. Like yeah. it gets, you know, just the moment. Like, 
yeah, the momentum on the company was just like, it yeah. was you're crazy. doing something right. Yeah, like you were hitting your mile- milestones and all those things. We were like blowing, every, like. Was it mainly like just like user like stuff or like grow, growing user base and that kind of stuff or was it more than that? Was it like were you making money like as a company? Yeah, we were like, I mean, every, every metric was hockey sticking. Yeah, it was like user growth was hockey sticking, revenue was hockey sticking. Where was Gave, the revenue coming from? If you don't mind me asking. So we had two main sources of revenue. We had brands who were paying us for access to the influencers. Got it. So we worked with like. You're like an OG influencer marketing agency. But it was really different <laughs> because we didn't give the brands the influencers. So like if we, let's say, uh, who's a big customer? Like Nike's a big customer. So Nike wants the 500 people most influential about running. Mm. We analyzed all the content you created to say like, okay, these are the people, mm. you know, whether it was by geography or whatever. Nike sent us the stuff, like the sneakers, and then we sent it to the user. Uh, so wow. we never sold the list. We never sold the data. Wow. We owned that relationship. How did, but how did... Not, and we never paid. We never paid the influencer and we never told them what they had. Our rule was like the influencer could say whatever they want. But so uh, Nike paid you guys. Yeah. And then sent you product. And yeah. you would you would just give free product to influencers or would, would you also... You wouldn't pay I mean, them. that was the business. Like how crazy is that? I mean, I was brands, this is genius. Brands <laughs> paid us yeah. to give their products away for free to people who are good at the internet. Because you like, guys were like, crazy. Yeah. I mean, you guys, I, I'm trying to think like a broker might be the wrong word, but like liaison. Yeah. Like you were like the, I guess you're like the, the representative. company. You were like the escrow yeah. company. Like that, that was like kind of like pay, getting paid. Plus here's the product. We're going to ship it off. Like, and they had that trust in you, obviously. Yeah. And it was really different from what the influencer scene looks like now because we actually purposely didn't care about the high end. Right. We didn't care about the Kim Kardashians or whatever. Right, right. We were like, we call, you know, what it now is micro influencer, but we right. were calling like everyday influencer, the person who, yeah. uh, amongst their friends, right. was like the leader. The nano influencer. But if they, didn't yeah, have, exactly. if they didn't have access to those people and to even know who they were, right? Like, how would they have. How did they trust you that like you were giving them the right and not like selling it? Yeah, or like keeping the I don't know keeping the product or well, we were able to show. So we had like the Twitter fire. We had we were analyzing something ridiculous, like you know billions of pieces of data a day. Yeah, and we were able to then report to them like here's all the content that was created and here's how many people it reached and here's so they so they were able to see like how what was their like ROI metric like yeah so we would show them like. A bunch, you know, some of it was conversion rate, some of it was like effective CPMs. There was yeah. a bunch of metrics, but like we had multiple. I mean, we were doing more than ten million dollars on that business, so it was yeah. like, uh, you know, McDonald's was a customer, Audi was a customer, Nike. Um, they were paying Disney, you for the Starbucks. service, like yeah. the, I mean, you were like, would it be considered SaaS? Like, was it considered a SaaS company? We had some that were on like monthly things, and there was. There's a campaign version, and then there was a SaaS right. version. And then, how would you contact these influencers? Like, just DM them and be like, "No, because hey, they a all product for you? they their all emails. they oh, had all registered for clout to monitor their clout scores. Mm. So we had they were signing in the clout every day to check their scores. So if you were an influencer on clout, or even if you weren't, you didn't even have to be that influential. It was just like yeah. geography versus topic. Yeah. You would sign in, and it would be like these five brands have offers for you, and you picked what you wanted. Oh. 
Um, for the record, I never got any FUCLA gear. I would have really appreciated <laughs> that, but you know, it's not Apologies right for not making that. I know, it's yeah. okay. What, um, what was the second form of revenue? So the second revenue was data. So we had, um, we were doing multiple billions of API calls a day where brands, or more companies were paying us for access to the data. So an example would be uh, like basically all the, so here's a crazy one. We had hotels in Las Vegas where we plugged our data into their reservation system. So if you were checking into, let's say, the Palms, they'd be like, oh, we're going to upgrade your room. Because they knew you were like had a lot of followers. Yeah, because they wanted you on wow. social media to be like, the Palms is sick. I love it, blah, blah, yeah. blah. Or we had like almost all the call center software providers where maybe you're not the person who should be sitting on hold mm. For an hour, I was, and I was hour waiting to see how the Vegas connection came yeah. into play. <laughs> uh, so, oh, so I, if you were like an influencer, you wouldn't be placed on hold. Yeah, you'd get a manager by Verizon or something. Yeah, motherfuckers. Uh, we also, <laughs> uh, Microsoft was paying us a ton of money, and they were using the data in Bing for search. Yeah. So, and Microsoft was an investor in us. So, yeah. so the business was like fifty-fifty on the like campaign side and yeah. the data side. Yeah, I mean, first of all, this business is genius. Like, I loved it from when I first saw it. I was like, this is gonna, this is gonna be awesome. I know Pat was hooked on it pretty instantly as well. Did you enjoy running that company? Like, were you like when you were running it? Like, was it something that you were proud of and like loved doing day in and day out? It was super intense. It was super, super, super intense. It was like, uh, I mean, it's a company that like started in my bedroom. That was just like, oh, my jaw's wired shut. I'm on a lot of drugs. Here's a fun thing to make. Yeah. To like. Moral of the story is do drugs. Uh, (laughs) I always thought my investors would like re-break my jaw when we were like, didn't hit our numbers (laughs) to like try to get me to have better ideas. Um, The biggest company I had worked at prior to that was like 10 people. And we were like. 80, 90, 100 people. You know, and were you we, like the CEO? I was the like, CEO through the, the whole thing. Yeah. You know, we raised over $40 million. So like the intensity and the pressure and like we were so much in the press. It was just like there's a Clout for Dummies book. There's an episode of Workaholics all about Clout. I mean, I would have like celebrities writing in, coming to the office, mm-hmm. calling because they were pissed about their Clout scores. <laughs> like we had a PR firm whose whole job was to kill press because there was so much press about us. Yeah. It kill was just clout. like felt like being in the middle of like a hurricane for yeah. like many years. Who had the highest clout? So that was like also always the biggest thing. People would get so pissed because Justin Bieber had the highest clout. I remember that. I and remember that. every article was like clout, the stupid company who thinks Justin <laughs> Bieber has the most clout. But it was like that was the data. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. At, if you're, you know, in 2012, Justin Bieber was a bigger deal around the world than Barack Obama. Right. And, like, you know, if you talk to the people who worked at Twitter, like, a ridiculous amount of their servers were dedicated to Justin Bieber. It would be like being mad at Nielsen because The Bachelor is, like, the most popular TV show instead of, right. you know, 60 Minutes. I mean, if you guys were around in 2016, I guarantee you Donald Trump's campaign would have paid a fat paycheck to I, get that It's deal. It's sad because Clout... Like is needed now more than oh, ever with sure. all the like disinformation. And I was about to say, like, is anybody else doing this now? The world has just changed so much. Well, like, what happened? Uh, to, what happened to Cloud? Oh, so yeah. in 2014 we sold. Okay. Uh, so we were acquired by a company called Lithium, who was a big SaaS enterprise marketing company for like 200 million. Yeah, okay. I was very sad. I went on Cloud.com one day. They're like, Cloud is now like 
Cloud or something or Kaloot or Kapoot. I was so yeah, Kapoot. Yeah, yeah, I was like, but are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that's like a. It was weird. Uh, yeah. I mean, they bought it; they could do what they want. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so you'd ask this question: Did I enjoy Cloud? It was super intense. If you'd asked me even a month before that acquisition what I would be doing in twenty years, I would have said running Cloud. Like, yeah. it was crazy, but it was fucking awesome. Yeah, and it yeah. was like uh, we had an amazing team. Uh, we were because of that kind of tornado we were in. We called ourselves Clout Laws, and we were like really had this kind of like, mm. you know, we know what we're building. We don't care what the rest of the world right. says. We're like in it. Uh, so it was fun. It was like a, you know, intense experience. During that those years, I'm assuming you got married or got married. Yeah, got married. Uh, it was yeah a lot. A lot of stuff, like a, a lot, lot of, of a lot, a of, lot of growing up and a lot of yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, just like yeah, growing up is learning how to be a CEO and yeah. learning how to like yeah, old, lead people. And, yeah. So, did you take any time off between that acquisition and like joy mode? I mean, obviously, you you also built now another big company. It's been five years since that acquisition. And, and what made you like? You just sold like a company for a good amount of money. Like, what what made you even want to? start another business versus just like, I don't know, retire or do something else. I don't know. Chill. <laughs> Chill. Uh, yeah, good question. <laughs> um, so my last day at Clout was like April 4th or something. 2014. 2014. 2014. 2015 because I stayed a year after the acquisition. Uh, my first delivery for Joy Mode was like May 15th of the same year. Oh my. So, so it's like so you must have been working on it well it's like thinking about it and it was like yeah, really low tech first delivery um so i really did not take any time and i think in retrospect that was like a mistake that conversation with my wife of like so uh i had this other idea i want to start working on and she's just like i'm gonna stab you like what the hell like <laughs> we just went through this whole thing like uh can't we chill for a yeah. minute and but i was like still so the funny thing is i'd had the idea for joy mode actually before clout and had tried working on joy mode before clout and couldn't i'd said like right product wrong time like that was one of them um and i was still just really hungry i was like uh i didn't selling clout was 100 percent the right thing to do at the moment but i wasn't ready to be done and and you you are still young yeah. Like, you're not going to just retire for the next 40 years of your life and do nothing. Well, I felt like if I stopped, I would get soft. Yeah. And so I was like, I'm in, yeah. like, right. that mode right now. Now it's starting to catch up to me where it's <laughs> like, wow, I've been operating at this, like, Lovely. high intensity for, like, 12 years. Yeah. And it's like, right. it's starting to wear I mean, <laughs> But now you at that moment, you know, you, like, kind of going off what Pat said, you have that financial security and you could technically, like, just chill and or take it easy a little bit. Yeah. But you didn't like. Obviously, you're like, let's get back right into it. What was it that you started? Like, what was the idea of Joy Mode? Like, what is that initial premise? So, when I moved in 2005 from Los Angeles to New York, okay. uh, I met a girl who's now my wife and been through this whole story. Yeah, we moved into an apartment in New York together, and that apartment was so small that basically anytime either of us bought something. We had to get rid of something just to like function in that space. Was that like a like a like a rule that was discussed, or that was just like what happened? 
it was like what was just kind of naturally happening and then we just kind of made it a rule where we're like we would it just kind of like informally became a thing where we were like we'd be out and we'd be like oh we should get that yeah. and we'd be like well where would we put it what would right. we get rid of yeah it's like what snapchat was trying to do until like now they've added like they, every time they added a new feature they would take like it on their app yeah but then there's yeah. like physical clutter yeah, yeah. so we were like the, yeah. uh <laughs> yeah so it was like physical stuff and on what side i really liked it i was like oh it's nice living in a space where we're like unencumbered from just clutter right. and, and all the, the kind of mental tax of that on the other side i was like this is really annoying i feel like our life is like artificially kind of i don't know, just like artificially like we're blocked from doing things like just because we don't have space and so i got really fascinated with like well why do we have to own stuff and what if you didn't have to own stuff and try to come up with all these different mechanisms but this is like too early it was like there was no airbnb like, there was no oh, okay so this is like, like 2005 2006 mm, yeah. there's no even apps there's no like yeah. the iphone is just yeah. like a year or like so how would this even work yeah like <laughs> yeah. so i was like the iphone wasn't no the iphone wasn't even out yeah there's nothing yeah. so there's like seven. so i was spending all this time trying to come up with ways to do it and they were like all these dumb ways and i couldn't get that like sharing economy breakthrough and then i had the idea for cloud and i was like oh yeah this works i'll focus on this but in the background of, of cloud i was you know, if I had spare cycles, I would think about this idea and like, uh, you know, the world I could felt like was changing where like people were getting less and less attached to the things they owned. And it wasn't the goal as much anymore to like move to the suburbs, to fill your house with stuff, to like, you know, show some form of status. It was about the experiences you were having. Um, so it just felt like this like cultural shift was happening. So what joy mode is, it's basically access to all the products you don't need to own. So it's a subscription service. And if you were like going camping, we'll bring you the uh, fully curated camping bundle. So it'd be like the tent, the cooler, the chairs, the stove, like everything. And then we pick it up when you're done mm -hmm. and you have access. You could do a one-off or you could pay a membership and have unlimited access to everything. Uh, so it's basically, yeah, like, almost netflix for stuff yeah right? like and the I'm, old version of netflix and i'm really fascinated not just not just by joy mode but this entire space like the sharing economy and like you mentioned like uber companies like uber and airbnb and and companies like that obviously popping up and doing so well um like i really would like love to talk about what what you see the future of this space being and how that's going to impact brands businesses uh, obviously we know how, how it's going to impact like the end user which is less things in your house and you know potentially less money spent on shit that you don't need where you just buy it and use it once and store it somewhere and never use it again and now you have to try to resell it somehow and make less money back and this whole model that we've had for so long but like what happens to all these brands and obviously that's going to impact retail and and that kind of stuff like how do you see this playing out because i see it obviously becoming a, a huge thing yeah. yeah, yeah. I always think about it, like it wasn't that long ago, where if I walked into somebody's house and I saw a CD or DVD collection, it was actually like cool. Yeah, it was like this interesting view into stuff you liked and like your taste. And I would go check it all out. Now, if you see that, you're like, why do you still have this stuff? Yeah. Like, don't you know about Spotify or Netflix? Like, this is weird. What we are trying to do with Joy Mode and other people are attacking from all sorts of other angles is like everything else. Like you don't need to own these things. And obviously you're still going to own some stuff, but if we could help you own fewer Less, things yeah. that you care more about that are higher quality, 
but be able to do more because you have access to everything else and you could use it just when you need it. Um, it's just a better way of living and this kind of consumption hangover of like debt and clutter and environmental impact. Uh, so it really is, I think, going to change how we all live and how we function and kind of our day-to-day lives. And for brands, it is, I think, somewhat scary from like, oh, wow, maybe like retail is not what I... Or, di- yeah. or selling direct to consumer. Like at some point, you know, they're like, I would see them competing to see who's going to be the top you know, experience on joy mode for this category, right? Like right. they're all competing right now for the end consumer, but in this case, they're going to be competing. For- yeah. They might actually make more money. And like, you know, you look at record labels and studios on Spotify and Netflix in a royalty based world. Yeah. Like, you know, there was some painful transition years, but now are doing really well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so yeah, I think like economic models and interaction models and relationship models are all going to be changing. And it's, you know, we're a part of that. There are many other companies doing amazing and, stuff. And do you see it being like, I don't want to say limited because there's it's so such a big, like the experience space is so big because everything's an experience. But uh, do you see Cloud moving, sorry, not Cloud, uh, Joy Mode moving into uh, like different products that maybe aren't related to experiences or just... So the funny thing is the third most popular product on all of Joy Mode is a vacuum cleaner. Really? (laughs) Wow. Like not even like a hardcore like industrial thing. Like like, a Dyson. Like a Dyson. And, you know, we look at it as like anything you use less than weekly potentially could be on Joy Mode. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's about how we tell stories around those products and how we make them accessible to you but it's not just like tents and stuff like cooking things are super popular on joy mode air mattresses luggage like there's lots of utility stuff already and we you know that's an area we continue to invest in and and expand i'm curious when you were launching joy mode did you invest in did you personally invest in this company or was it something again where you had to go out and fundraise both so yeah i personally invested but i also I mean, we've raised like a little over $20 million. So like, and it was easier this time around, I assume? <laughs> a lot easier. <laughs> and did you yeah. start it alone or did you have co-founders? I have two co-founders, yeah. And then there's another guy who was like basically there since day one. And who are your co-founders? Like how did you meet them? So one worked with me at Clout. Okay. And another, I tried to recruit to Clout for like five years. So like... Maybe it'll work with Joy Mode, huh? <laughs> Yeah. So like every time we hired an engineer, I would like take yeah. him out to lunch and be like, oh, who was the smartest person you worked with at your previous company? And, like, multiple people from Google told me this guy, Wayne, was, like, really amazing. So I finally met him. We Who became also fr- worked at Google? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I tried to recruit him out of Google to come to Clout, and I could never get him. He wanted to start his own company, so I actually invested in that company to stay close to him. And we wow. stayed close, and, like, timing just kind of worked out when Joy Mode was starting. He yeah. was ready, and so he's been a partner Another guy from Cloud has been amazing, Keith. And then there's a guy, Weston, who was, funny enough, was our first customer, was the very first person to make a reservation on Joy Mode and became the first employee and has been here since minute one. And, That's awesome. You know, is basically a co- So it's been like a little over four years, right? Um, yeah. You, you've been running Joy Mode and, and growing it. What's been like the biggest challenge since, since starting it? Was it getting even people aware of Joy Mode? Or yeah, it's there- definitely a challenge. And this is a really... You know, this is ultimately a logistics business. So, like, 
cloud had lots of challenges, but like it was all digital. So, you know, you just like, we could throw servers at it or whatever. And we served the whole world from, you know, minute zero and cloud got big in Japan and Brazil and all these random places. Joy mode is the opposite where it's like, you know, we own the inventory, the inventory that's on joy mode. Like we go buy. So we have millions of dollars of inventory. We have a warehouse. Everything gets delivered. We have, yeah, you know, twenty, thirty thousand products a week that leave the warehouse. It's like the yeah. opposite of like the traditional, like sh- I, now it's traditional, but the sh- traditional sharing economy model where you, yeah, the companies don't own anything. Yeah, we're <laughs> like we own everything. We, yeah. you know, we own the structure. So, but like, you're not just LA based, are you? We're LA based. I mean, like, do you only ship in? We LA? only serve LA. Wow. Yeah. So we only serve LA. So we have now, right now, like twenty five to thirty thousand products a week leave our warehouse. So that's twenty five to thirty thousand opportunities for something to go wrong. Of like, a product's not clean, or it's missing pieces, or it's broken, or blah blah blah. So like, which happens, I assume. Of course, but like we really, really focus on not letting it happen, and like, right. um, like that's a challenge. Just like the logistic and the upkeep sk- of like the products. Yeah, and just the uh, like LA is a giant sprawling city, and like, right. I mean, we had a meeting. Like, uh, one of our bottlenecks is number of doors on the warehouse and you can't just like you know it's just very different the cloud we'd be like oh just throw more servers at it like yeah you know it's there it's a physical building with doors <laughs> and you're like oh that's why we can't get more orders out like right. Right. Uh, so like it's just like a very different world for me and like a new set of problems and which i love and but so it's like a lot and of so you, how do you see how do you see it scaling to other cities uh, is that in, in the works or is for it, sure yeah. yeah i mean we're uh, I think this is a company where you have to go slow to go fast later. So like there's been a lot of these geographically constrained companies that overexpanded and then contracted. LA is so huge. There's like a, so much market here. We have 10 even million people. Yeah. Um, so we've taken our time really trying to nail LA. We want to expand from a position of strength. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't wake up stressed that somebody's going to open up. Right. Joy mode Chicago if we're not there tomorrow. So like, you know, being really deliberate and like figuring out the model and how to scale it in LA yeah. so that we can go replicate that city to city. But let's say so, let's say there were to like be other competitors enter the market. How like how do you see or what about Joy mode? Is it that it would be like different than another company having a bunch of um inventory and just trying to like sell experiences like besides the fact that obviously you've learned so much and and figured out your own system that it would take like forever for them to figure out but other than that like i mean that is like a big thing that's the big (laughs) yeah Yeah, like i mean we've done we have four years of delivering thousands of products to know how to track all those things we've built amazing systems uh you know we've that core team that came out of cloud and Google and all these places, like, uh, we think about our data in a really different way than I think other people would approach this problem. And we believe that gives us a sustainable competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of things that our scale enable us to do where our economics are getting better and better. And we've had to raise already a lot of money, and it's a really complex set of challenges. And I know from pitching this company, it's really hard. Like, when I, you know, even as somebody who's has a reasonable track record, try to pitch this company, 
a lot of investors have just a straight allergic reaction. What, what, what's their allergic reaction to? Well, you're like, oh, we're, we're trying to, we're challenging the notion of ownership. And the investor's like, wow, that's a big idea. How are you doing that? Well, we own all the stuff. And it's like, er, car skids off the road. Mm. You know, like, when you talk to an investor, a lot of times they are looking to pattern match. And so they're like, okay, let me think about that. You know, what's beautiful about Uber, what's beautiful about Airbnb, what's beautiful about whoever is like, they don't own anything. Uber doesn't own cars. Airbnb doesn't own houses. They're middlemen. Now you're telling me you own everything. Like, that sounds like a bad idea. And yeah. so uh, that, you know, like that concept is, is hard is, to overcome. Is this business possible without owning the product? And is that something that is in Joy Mode's long-term plans? We certainly... My bet is owning the product is required to get going. And over time, that can evolve. Right. But I think there's been a lot of attempts at this problem from a P2P perspective. Mm. And this idea that like you and I going to coordinate so I could come get a mountain bike out of your garage. Mm-hmm. Now you're just playing kind of the middleman, like police, yeah. like making sure quality right. control. Like, yeah. There's a little bit of it will yeah, work. There's zero quality control in that. Yeah, yeah. there's zero quality. Con- like the idea, you know, we've got, I don't know, we've got 500 tents in our warehouse. Right. But they're all the same tents. Like we've done a ton of research to pick the right tent. We know how to service it. We've created great instructions. When we deliver it to you, it's going to work. And you being able to trust that is why you're a Joy Mode member. And so like all that stuff plays together and I think, you know, is required so people can have the type of experience yeah. they need to like to make that change, mm-hmm. not own mm-hmm. instead of Yeah. Access. What's your what's your personal favorite experience on Joy Mode? I mean, I have kids, so like uh, I use a lot. We have a kids is like a great, I don't know, category for us because they're so transactional and what yeah. they want to play with. Like, like they get sick of it really quickly. Yeah, <laughs> like I'll bring a ball pit home, and it's the coolest thing in the world to them for a couple days, and then they're like, and then it's just like taking up our living room, and it's awesome that Joy Mode comes and picks it back up. Uh, so I, I bring stuff home almost every weekend. It's kind of like cool dad secret weapon right um so the kids stuff's really great the cooking stuff is nice where it's like you know randomly we'll be like oh let's do a pizza night and we'll take the pizza oven or the like uh a sous vide or you know we've got like a lot of different cooking stuff the air fryer and not having that stuff take up my whole kitchen is like awesome yeah the way i found out about joy mode actually funny enough was a few months ago we had interviewed uh Jason. Dr. Jason Worsland, who's the founder of Theragun. Oh, yeah. And That's a huge product for yeah. us. And so one of my good buddies, Deanna, he's like, oh, he's like, oh, I love that product. I'm like, oh, do you own one? He's like, oh, no, no, I just, I've used it on Joy Mode. And I was like, I'm like, what's that? And he's like, you've never heard of Joy Mode? It's like the like, perfect product for yeah. Joy Mode. Yeah. yeah. I was like, like embarrassingly, I have not like no heard of Joy is, Mode. Like a lot of these people, obviously, it's like $400 is, is, yeah. is a lot of money, like, you know, and they want to use it usually like when they have some sort of injury, which is yeah. kind of like. Hopefully I'm, not often. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Pat, Pat yeah. and I own one yeah. and we love it, but yeah. it's like, we don't really even have time to use it. Yeah. Right. So yeah. it's like, do we really It's an need awesome to product. It? Yeah. It's a great product. Yeah. If you're like, yeah, if it's like not in the budget or it's like you're not hopefully injured a lot, like. I, I think eventually you guys need to carry some. Huge us. You guys got to carry some like podcasting products for people that don't. We've talk talked about it yeah. a lot. I think yeah. 
Yeah, I may need your help curating. Yeah, for I, sure. That's so do you guys like, sure. I mean, how does this work? Like, do you guys as a team get together like every now and then and just kind of brainstorm about new products to offer, new experiences? And like, how do you go about choosing? Like, there's I mean, there's so many things out there, right? Like, Yeah, so one of the cool things is because we just serve LA, um, like we also do deliveries. Like, I'll go do deliveries. And then you like, awesome. you meet the customer and it's a, you know, like a really magical experience but it's an avenue for us to get really direct feedback. So we hear a lot like, oh, I wish you guys, you know, a woman was like, I wish you guys had a dog obstacle course. And huh. I was like, that's kind of fun. Sure. And we just go and get it and we try it and we put it out there and see if it works. And if it does, we scale up. If it doesn't, we'll have a couple of them around. Uh, so we definitely listen to our customers and that informs us. And then we do have a merchandising team who like, Every, you know, they just like put together the Halloween. They pitched me on like, hey, here's what we're thinking for Halloween. It's these 10 things, blah, blah, blah. And I'll say like, oh, more of this, less of that, whatever. Um, but they're always thinking a few months ahead and and kind of, you know, like, like we always, you know, we want to roll out new stuff every mm. month. Joe, I was wondering, because when I first found out about it, to me, it seemed like you guys are a lot like a marketing company as well. You know, you're marketing a lot of these products for these brands and these services or whatever it may be. How has that played a role in it for the companies that want to work with you guys? Yeah. So we, you know, we, we want to talk about experiences more than we do products, but we will talk about products to the extent that we're like, Hey, we specifically curated these products from these brands for this experience to like right. kind of tell a story. Right. Um, so we put a lot of work into thinking about the like 15 or 20 or 30 things you wish you could do in a year. Like, you know, in Southern California for a lot of people, it's like, oh, I'm going to go to Coachella and then I'm going to do one ski weekend and my parents are going to visit and I'm going to have friends from out of town this other weekend. We're going to do a beach day and a dinner party and like thinking about those right. moments and like uh, thematically plugging them in against the calendar. So an example would be like, one of our most famous bundles is a backyard movie night and it's like a uh, screen yeah. projector, popcorn machine chairs. Like it's really fun. Uh, when it's game of Thrones premiere, it's game of Thrones premiere party. And it's like telling a story around this thing you might want to do and putting the right products against the calendar yep. and inspiring you to try things you thought were out of reach or you didn't even know you wanted to do and setting that up is like a big part of our business. It would be pretty cool to see uh, like joy mode influencers come up with like some sort of like bucket list and then like have like all these things that they yeah, want. Yeah, like curation's a big deal for us yeah. and like whether it's <clears throat> internally our customers or influencers, that's an area we're like continuing to invest more into. Do you see yourself running joy mode for the next 20 years? I think so. I mean, I really, it's like a, really fun set of challenges um you know we've got an amazing team like i think i think this can be a really important transformational company the same way that like an uber or an airbnb right. have changed how we right. live that we have that potential so like that horizon sounds about right like it's going to take 20 years right. uh so Maybe don't want my wife to know that I'd like to do this for 20 years. <laughs> yeah, but Pat, like, Pat, maybe we'll just yeah, cut that yeah. part out. Yeah, no, but it's, uh, uh, 
I would be very fortunate to get that mm-hmm. opportunity. And you know, one thing that you said that I think stuck out a lot to me was the fact that this is this is one of the companies that you have to build slow to then what grow fast. Is that yeah. what you said? And I feel like companies like Uber, like Lyft, like you know Airbnb did the opposite. Like especially Uber. I mean, with the amount of money they raised, like, and they just tried to grow as fast as possible. And now it's like, how do we make money? Right. Like, how do we profit? Like, how is this a business? Because to me, this, this is like, like Uber's like less than a, it's like a no profit company. You know, it's like not even a nonprofit. So, how do you measure or how do you, you know, think about which company or what company should grow slow to scale faster? Yeah. So, I think if I was running Uber, if I was fortunate enough to have started Uber, uh, I feel like they've basically played the right strategy because, like, for them, in a business where market, there's, like, relative, it's such a network effect business between drivers and riders and, like, market share is kind of everything. Uh, Just owning the market was, like, very valuable. Where our business, if our business, if you could build this business without having to own the inventory, it'd probably be a more similar strategy to Uber or Airbnb. But because we made the decision and the bet that owning the inventory was going to be the like big part of value creation, uh, it creates a scenario though where it's a big moat from other people, but it creates a scenario where a lot can go wrong. Mm. So an example is you buy too much inventory, but you don't have enough customers. Yeah. You're screwed. Uh, you get too many customers, but you don't have enough inventory. You're screwed. Uh, you buy a ton of inventory, you get a ton of customers, but all that inventory breaks and it's the wrong inventory. Right. You're screwed. So like all these things can go wrong. So it's been very like methodical step by step how we've thought about like, okay, how many customers can we support? How much inventory do we need? How do we keep laddering these things up in right. unison? Right. And you know, building towards a place where we feel confident that we can start stamping that out with more velocity in more cities. Um, so, yeah, that's like our, our goal and where I feel like we're getting really close to. Well, Joe, this has been an awesome conversation. Uh, I mean, I think I speak for both of us when I say we both love what you've created yeah. uh, with, with, I mean, both Clout and Joy Mode, but we're excited to see where Joy Mode goes from here and, and, and how you guys expand to other cities and more experiences and kind of just seeing where because i think i mean it's such an interesting space and like like you're saying like the idea of just i think what is it do more own less is right that your do thing? more own less do more own less it's amazing like like who who says that you know you should be limited to the experiences that you can only afford to buy right like yeah. it's crazy so yeah the idea of a world where like you're only limited by your imagination not what you own is exciting to me 100 yeah. percent Thanks, Joe. Cool. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. (laughs)